0: you're listening to the tennis.com podcast and here's your host Ed McGrogan Hi everyone, welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. This is Ed McRogan, joined today by a special guest, Colette Lewis. Um, her website, ZooTennis.com, is one of, if not the source on college tennis you'll find um, online. I know a lot of a lot of you who follow tennis closely probably um, probably know and have read Colette's work, but um, I wanted to get her on the podcast today um, as perhaps part of the piece you uh, are reading today about last year's NCAA men's final. So, Colette, thank you, first of all, for joining us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Um, Just I'd like you to kind of introduce really, because I think it's a question I had, too, is kind of what drew you um, to covering college tennis? You know, how long have you been covering it? And and what's, you know, what's the appeal that you see in really devoting uh, your work to it?
1: Well, I started covering junior tennis because of my home here in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where the, the boys' nationals are played, and I, I've i been doing that basically my whole life, but once I started actually covering tennis as a reporter about oh, 15, 14, 15 years ago, I I was drawn to kind of find out what happened to the boys after they leave here, after they've gone to the through the 18s, one Kalamazoo or done well here. And so it, it seemed like a natural progression to kind of follow them through college. In 2005, when I started ZooTennis.com, I went to my first NCAA men's team final. It was at College Station. It was four to three. UCLA came back from Uh, being 3-1 down, and it was just one of the most exciting things I had ever seen in tennis, Um, not having seen very much team or Davis Cup. It was amazing, the excitement, the drama. So from then on, I was hooked. It's not often that you can pinpoint an exact time where something drew you in, but there was no question to me that that was something I definitely felt I had to be Uh, covering and watching after seeing that match.
0: You know, actually, it got me thinking just talking to you now, um, seeing where the players, the juniors go after playing juniors. And now in the pro tour, I think a lot of recent momentum has has been, you know, many college players are making that jump to the pro game. Um, John, Isner's an obvious example, there's a lot of others, though. Um, Hmm. You know, what do you think actually about um the preparation that college gives for the pro game? Is is that something that you think um this is a trend that you see continuing, you know, just to increase as time goes on?
1: I do think so. I, I was just talking to someone the other day about uh Blas Rola from Ohio State, who's the defending or reigning NCAA champion who turned pro after his junior year at Ohio State, and now is up to, I believe it's 128 in the world. So at, at this time last year, you were watching um, a young man of that caliber play and occasionally lose in college tennis. So you can tell what the quality is. It, it's really um, futures level, a challenger level at the very top for sure. So to me, I, I just think that, to get the kind of competition you need without struggling financially. It's a very, very good option for 99% of the aspiring pros out there. It's just really difficult to pay your way. I know there's been a lot of talk about just the paltry money that's made at that level, how quickly you really have to get up winning challengers to survive financially. And college gives you an opportunity not to have to worry about that economic, also get great competition, grow up some, and maybe not least, have a family kind of behind you. Um, once you go to college, you really do have um, a support network that extends forever. I mean, John Isner still has huge support wherever he goes in the world, if there if there are University of Georgia. Uh, alumni there and the same now with Kevin Anderson from Illinois and so I think that's another important thing to just really have a, a connection um, to a bigger institution that can kind of help support you in those early years when things are tough.
0: It's true especially because of how uh, by nature sort of a solo act tennis is and, and just really it, it is a lonely game in ways when you're playing and. And in many players' cases, like you're saying, just trying to get by, it, it's a very, as as many of you know, difficult time there. Um, primarily, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is about UCLA and Virginia, who, um, in this most recent piece, uh, this oral history that we've done, including your, you know, including yourself, uh, we've talked about this in obviously some pretty great detail. Um, the piece, you know, leaves off. With, uh, with looking ahead a little bit to where uh, these two teams go. They play for the first time since that NCAA final um, later this week. And I was wondering uh, what really has become of the Bruins and the Cavs this year. Are there a lot of players remaining from these two final teams last year, or is it a lot of turnover? Just kind of maybe an overview of where these two teams stand now.
1: There's been a little bit. They've both lost their number ones. Dennis Novikov of UCLA turned pro after his sophomore year, and Jameer Jenkins graduated from Virginia, and he's out in in the top 300 now in in the um, ATP rankings. So um, obviously there's that. When you lose the the top two guys, there's going to be a little bit of change, but the two protagonists are back, although Adrian Puget has not played because he's had an injury. He is in school, but they're taking it, taking it very slow. So that's another issue as to whether he will be part of the match coming up. But uh, Mitchell Frank has been playing number one for Virginia now after after playing in the third position last year. Um UCLA actually has two of their players in the qualifying at Indian Wells right now today. Uh, Clay Thompson, who has been playing one for them after playing five for them last year. And uh, Marcos Giron, who has been, uh, is a junior now and has been playing two for them for the last couple of years, occasionally one as well. So, They're both excellent teams. They would both be among the favorites heading into the NCAAs in May. So I think this match is going to go um, a long way kind of to seeing if if they can possibly top that last one. Certainly not, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a a very interesting um, kind of gauge at where the two teams are right now.
0: Yes. and, And if anybody here listening has not read the piece, uh, sort of shame on you, first of all, but also Virginia wins the title four to three, being down effectively title points and, you know, escaping in one of the most unlikely ways possible. Yes. (laughs) So like I said, please read it. And Colette, of course, contributes a lot um, to the the color setting the scene. She was at the final, um, of course. Um, Who, you know, what are some of the other teams along with UCLA and Virginia this year um, on the men's side? Uh, that position themselves, in your opinion, as title favorites.
1: I think it is pretty wide open this year. Um, Ohio State won the team indoor championship, and they're undefeated. They have an amazing winning home winning streak going, which is now at 182 straight matches, going back to 2003. They have not lost a match at home in Columbus, so that's amazing, and they're undefeated this year. It's probably not one of the very strongest teams that they've ever had, but um they knew when they lost uh, Rolla that that they were going to have to get you know a team effort. But they did win the team indoor, so they are definitely a threat u s c who who won the four previous years prior to Virginia is always an, an excellent. Excellent team there to be considered. And there are probably four or five other teams that could could pop up and, and do well. John Roddick, Andy Roddick's older brother, has an, a very fine team at Oklahoma this year. And uh, Texas is very good. Uh, Georgia will be back in the mix. There's just a whole slew of them, and it makes it very exciting, actually. We've always had a few semi-prohibitive favorites I guess going in and I think maybe UCLA would have been that had Puget been healthy but um, since he hasn't been able to play right uh, recently there's still some question and they're they're not very good at doubles right now so it it leaves the door open to a very exciting uh, tournament coming up.
0: I actually want to ask um, along with the women's favorites who I'd like to know because we haven't um, touched on on that side of things. Yeah, I'd like to kind of get the same you know, top level perspective from you on the women's um, status right now. Also, I was wondering if you could explain to myself and to everybody else listening really just the overall schedule of how college tennis plays itself out each year. It's um, is it is it more seasonal? Each um, you know fall is it more fall is it more spring? It obviously ends in May, but what are kind of the the, the main pillars of the college season and how it progresses?
1: Right now, it it uh, in the fall is the individual season. There are two majors: one outdoor, one indoor, and all the uh, tournaments are. Like all ATP and ITF tournaments, standard you know 32, 64 draw tournaments with with one winner. And a lot of uh, the ranking information in that um, is generated from from those two tournaments and then smaller tournaments that, that other uh, that are hosted. but th- there are two big national ones. Then uh, beginning in in mid to late January, once everybody's back in school, they start the dual match season where where teams are playing each other usually twice a week. Uh, Conference season is usually just getting started right now and extends through mid to late April, and then we start the NCAAs. But those are team events where – um, you are slotted by the, your, the level of your ability with one through six in singles. And then in doubles, um, there are three doubles teams um, that play each other f- for one point. And whoever wins the points, uh, six singles points, whoever wins um, four of those seven points available wins the match. And I, I'm assuming that I hope people are a little more familiar with that if they've read the story um exactly how that works, but this is a team season that we're in right now, so um that that's that's the spring in the fall is definitely the individual part of it
0: yeah, I was uh you know it was it was a little bit surprising to me only to see how. You know the the great disparity between all uh, the amount of singles matches that go into the overall score and just one doubles match that really goes into it. That was one thing I, um, you know, I noticed right away off the piece there. And even to the effect that the doubles match is, is played first before any of the singles matches, it, it really does come down, I guess, to how how good your singles field can be there. Um, yes,
1: it, it does, and and yet it is amazing how that sort of sets the table for what's to follow. Obviously, if you've got very good singles, you can overcome the loss of just that one point. But it but it does give you a little bit um, more chance to maybe relax once you've already got that one point, knowing that you only need three more. You don't have to win four of the six. So it it does set the tone. It is one of the, the – um, doubles is one of the things that has been – sort of, um, I won't say de-emphasize, but that's probably the right word in uh, some of the format experimentation that's going on right now. And the college match days, which are being televised on ESPN 3 occasionally, usually once a week during the season, are going with singles first. And doubles is only played then if the match is tied at 3-all. So far... There haven't hasn't been a three all match.
0: So. Yeah, that that is one. Um, you know, I think I think that was one story that got picked up a lot. Um, I I may ask you to kind of outline just when when this experiment actually um, started or is taking place. Just of I, I kind of compare it to how on the pro tour, you know, years ago there has been a lot of kind of wondering of what to do with doubles because of some concerns about the time it takes to play the matches of and in the pros obviously it's a lot more geared toward, you know, what is kind of the marketability of it, what's it what's its appeal. But I know that this was a big issue taken in college tennis, and it even got a lot of, from what I remember, it got a lot of attention directly from the teams, the universities, the players itself, like a really grassroots appeal to kind of, you know, save it, in effect, save the way the game is played. Am I sort of on the right track with that?
1: Yes, two years ago, the NCAA committee came out saying that that there would be there would not be a third set played. It would be like doubles is now on the ATP and WTA tour that um, it would be regular scoring, unlike that. But there would be a match tiebreaker in lieu of a third set. That was not po- a popular choice, particularly with the players. I think. Um, a lot of this is driven by just the fact that people believe that matches, which good matches do take usually three and a half hours, sometimes even longer than that, but but usually around three and a half to four hours, if they're really, really good, really close. And so there's been a kind of a push, um which was started by the NCAA committee, which is not the regulation body of College tennis in the United States—that's actually the ITA. So it makes it a little bit diff- difficult, though. I'm sure everybody who follows tennis is well aware of all the different alphabets that 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 go behind every single um, decision, and that's the same in college tennis. However, there that change did not fly. There was an uproar over that. Um, they backed off, but then um, last September. The USTA said that they would they would do this ESPN thing, but under the format that they play singles first and doubles only if the match is tied at three. So that's been another wrinkle. There's also was some other experimentation. The men went to NOAD. The women tried the match tiebreaker in lieu of a third set. That was not popular. Um, I think NOAAD has... has caught on a little bit. Um, I, I think there have been less objections to that than to some of the other um, things that have been tried. So we're still right now not knowing. This This year's NCAAs will be played as last year's was, but um, with standard scoring. And I think it's a tiebreaker at 7-all in the doubles.
0: It's interesting that uh, doubles is jumbled around from ether. <clears throat> Excuse me, almost being inconsequential in a way to being so pivotal. So we'll see where it goes yes, there. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: um, last thing I wanted to ask is to go back. Um, wanted your thoughts on where the women's college game is at the moment, and I and we only put it to the end here as as we're kind of playing this off of our big men's piece. And I promise that if next this year's women's NCAA final ends in as much excitement, controversy, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll do the other end and give the lion's share to the ladies. So maybe some thoughts to close on, on where um, what the status is of the best uh, title-contending women's teams.
1: Yeah, and we have had some really thrilling women's matches the past two or three years as well. But, yeah, it's it's going to be extremely hard to, to top uh, that U, U, UCLA-UBA match. Um, the women, again, there are a number of the usual contenders. Stanford, um, the defending champion, is very, very good. They have. They do not play the team indoor, and so it's a little bit hard to determine how really good they are because they don't compete against the best teams until their Pac-12 season actually gets out underway, which hasn't happened yet. So we haven't really seen, but Florida went in there, and Florida's another perennial, and those two have had an amazing rivalry over the past four or five, well, probably the last 30 years, but just some great, great matches since I've been covering it. And Florida went out to Palo Alto and got shut out, which is extremely unusual. So... I think you have to say Stanford is, is really a, a contender. They lost their number one in Nicole Gibbs, who is a two-time NCAA champion. So they, they do have, you know, holes to fill, but they seem to be always be able to recruit really great players. And Duke is number one right now. They won the team indoor. They have excellent, excellent team. Um, there, there are... UCLA, uh, which is coached by Pete Sampras's sister, Stella, is an outstanding team. So I think, again, uh, USC is very good, Virginia, North Carolina. There's going to be a lot of um, excitement again at the NCAAs for the women as well.
0: Colette, thank you very much for, I think, uh, a lesson really in – the college game to a lot of us here myself included and um, hopefully we can touch base again maybe around may for the ncaa to kind of see how things shook out
1: okay sounds great thank great. you ed
0: thank you very much and uh thank you all again for listening to the tennis.com podcast i'm ed mcgrogan with colette lewis of zootennis.com you've been enjoying tennis.com's weekly podcast thanks for listening For all the latest news and events, head over to tennis.com.